I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Great. Good. Good to hear. Um, so we started this podcast because we kind of realized that we had the same dreams mm-hmm. as kids. Yes. And then something changed and you didn't go into the games industry. Yes. And I did. Yes. And then we have 10 odd years after that sort of met up and, you know, our, our careers have converged since. Mm-hmm. But I was interested in talking to you about what led you to want to be in the games industry uh yeah i know for me it was just like it was what i always did right you yeah. know you're a kid that's what you want to make you want to make games mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i don't know if that's true of you and so have you ever written your own game so i i have written some computer games none of them are notable in any way um i have made some board games that i have produced and sold um, oh, which has its own sort of interesting aspects to it. It's not quite as techy, but maybe a little bit in some ways that you wouldn't expect. I mean, I yeah, no, that sounds very techy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things. Yeah, right. Okay, like the mechanics of the game are a technology all to themselves, right? Like you know, if you're doing like a side scroller game, like you know the 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 way in which you jump and how you land and how much control you have over as you're floating through the air can right. sort of make yeah, a yeah. huge difference. And obviously like if you in hold the jump of, key down longer, do you right, jump higher even though that's yeah. irrational and doesn't make any sense, but it's kind of <laughs> needs to be there. How many pixels off the edge yes. of the, the, the platform can you actually go before you start to fall? Right. Those kinds of tweakables. Right, yeah. Okay. Right. And then but obviously then, for like strategy games, you know, there's the whole like mechanics of the economy, you know, some four X space game where you're like, Oh, you're trading iron for hydrogen across the galaxy and you know the mechanics of that and the economics of that can be really nerdy too right i was going to say that's where you need a sort of degree in economics to be able to vaguely understand how everything fits together and not leave yourself open right 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 because the worst thing in the world is you put your heart and soul into a game and then some nerd on the internet in like five hours be like yeah if you just trade hydrogen for iron you can make an infinite amount of money and then win the game in three hours right like that's just like oh god what have i done what have i yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. Yeah. But so so did you actually I mean obviously we can talk about your board games and I'd love to hear about mm-hmm. what the process is and that but but before we get there you what made you want to be uh, what made you want to make games? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I played a lot of I played a lot of video games as a kid. I played video games on my Commodore 64, which I enjoyed a lot. Played a lot of Hooray. Defender. That was a fantastic thing. Uh I had a Genesis, a Sega Genesis system. I played a lot of games on that. Uh eventually I got into PCs and played, you know, Heroes Quest and Space Quest and a bunch of other games in that that era that that uh, I really liked a lot. Um, we were just talking the other day about, well, uh, earlier today I think about how um, I'm super jealous of my oldest child who can just pull out her debit card and go onto Steam and buy any game at any time whenever she wants, whenever they want, and instantly get gratification from that and when i was right. that age i had to take a trip down to the mall and yep. go into you know babbage's uh software shop where they sold software in boxes in on floppy disks and <laughs> i still i still have this memory to this day of that store and going in 
and I don't remember what game I was buying, but I went in and sitting on the counter at Babbage's was a demo disc for Wolfenstein 3D. And it had like oh a, an in-game image of the game. And my initial reaction was, it can't possibly be that cool. This is going to there's, be a mock-up. There's of it. no way yeah. that that I is mean, that, actually what the game looks like. There's no way. Round about that time, like yes. there were so many liberties with the with the covers of games. There would yes. be these ridiculous mock-ups, and you were yes. like, you get so disappointed when you got home and you just got right. like a black and white like yep. blocky thing. Yep. And yeah, yeah, so but so I didn't take the disc. Yeah, I, like, I was like, I didn't find out about Wolfenstein until weeks and weeks and weeks later when all my friends were talking about it. I was like, get wait, out. that's real? Oh, you missed it. I missed it. <laughs> And I had to go back to the you're, mall. You're, it was terrible. Your uh, your inner cynic prevented you from enjoying. Yeah, I was like, a "There's few no way of, that it's that cool." Of, of shooting Nazis, which is you know one of the main yeah. attractions of, of Wolfenstein 3D. Yes. yes, yes, yeah. Amongst the technical brilliance of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really it was a question of you being an avid game player mm-hmm. and then wanting to go into the um, the games industry to to make games, yeah, right? Because yeah. that's what. Makes sense, yeah. right? You know, it's, a, it's it, if you're going to do any kind of tech job, it's, it's certainly as a kid, it's more glamorous to right. want to, to to make games than it is to, you know, have a dream to be writing a database. <laughs> I don't think there are many many fifteen year olds that are sat there going like, I yeah, I just got a, a passion, a passion for yeah. SQL. The asset properties really <laughs> I mean, I mean, really speak to me as a as a human being. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say that those people don't exist, and I'm glad that there are people right. like that that find right. it so exciting. I mean, one can only wonder what. Um, oh, what's the chap's name? Afir, the oh, the person yeah. he, uh-huh. he yes. takes uh-huh. apart the databases at like the lowest possible level. He's a very interesting yeah. person in great, so many dimensions. It's definitely not safe for work Twitter oh, account for those yeah, who are thinking sure. of following following yeah. him, but um, but very interesting nonetheless yeah. but yeah so there are obviously people who, who find that stuff so interesting that they will do it but but games I think have that much more of a universal kid mm-hmm. appeal for mm-hmm. certain yeah yeah that was, I mean, that was and we kind of talked earlier about like when I got into college I was more into AI and you know I, I really like yes. I did some graphic stuff but it was more AI for me but yeah that, that was kind of my that was kind of my arc do, do you have like that moment where you're like this is what I want to do when you sort of realize that like this was the moment no, I think I I kept hanging on to the idea that I was going to get a PhD in physics and do like research in physics. That was my really? life. That was what my plan was. I loved games and I loved making games. So I made a number of games, some of which I believe still survive. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, not very nothing very good either, right? Nothing worth really talking about. Although I'm sure I will because that's I me and I can't help myself. <laughs> but um, that was always the hobby thing that I was doing. I never really thought it was a sensible thing to do. When I finished mm-hmm. school, I went, sorry, school as in like high school to Americans and went to university, which is college to you. Uh, <laughs> sometimes too. I know, I know. Come on. It just confuses me when Americans say school and they mean university. Oh, well, yeah, that's okay. a thing. What? We uh, definitely yeah. do that. But, you know, I picked physics because that was what I thought was my my passion mm-hmm. but i ended up spending my entire time in the computer lab writing multi-user dungeons mm-hmm. and doing silly things you know with that and then ultimately got a job in the games industry not because i wanted necessarily to go into the games industry exactly but because i was chatting on irc and about having to get a job and somebody who worked in the, have you ever thought about getting a job here i'm like no i don't think i ever really thought that this was a serious thing that <laughs> Is i could something do. Adults do i mean i yeah exactly <laughs> yes Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, for, for at least, you know, five years after I got a, um, a, a job 
and I'd got published games and I was doing okay, mm-hmm. uh, my mother would still say to me, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> and, you know, I, to, to an extent, I think I, 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 uh, I felt that myself. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, well, I get paid to do this. It seems too, too good. I mean, not very much, admittedly. I didn't get paid very much at all for a long right. time. But, um, but that was the games industry at the back, back mm-hmm. then, certainly in North London. So, yeah, I mean, I had written a few games because that was what you did. Those are the most interesting tech things uh-huh. to do. Um, around that time in the UK, at least, the market was, there were, you know, a lot of black market floppy disks uh-huh. going around that you could get games with. But um, there were also a number of magazines that you could buy from the, the newsagent and they would have type-in games. And so you would sit uh-huh. for many hours and then you would type in a somewhat decent game. And some of them were pretty good, actually. And that's mostly where I learned the tricks, uh-huh. right, was was debugging other people's code not necessarily it was a problem their problem but because i typed right. it in wrong and then or there's like they printed it where you went wrong right. or they printed it wrong yeah. right they were actually pretty good about that yeah. that wasn't such a big deal but the the first programs professionally published um that i had professionally you know my first professional programming work was writing type in programs for these magazines like yeah. they didn't know that you know me and my mate richard were 13 and 14 at the time uh, sending in stuff and it was like you know 10 pounds here five pounds here 50 pounds for the you know like the, the star one and yeah, that's yeah. a lot of money yeah, yeah. when you are when you are 14 or 15 right, right. and towards the end we got a deal to do a multi-part type in game for one of the um, uh, uh, main publishers acorn user but um, it was right at the end of the lifetime of the, the computer that was writing on and so they mm-hmm. they actually dropped support for that computer before we completed it so we have most of it written still down somewhere and uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun but yeah it's i i don't know why games were the draw i think it was that tech challenge you know the same reason that that uh, all the hacking groups wrote demos oh, yeah. it's like well uh-huh. what's the most impressive thing well okay you can compute pi to 100 decimal places that's not very exciting but if i can make a cool thing happen on the screen right right that's interesting and so you want to show off you write something with cool you know like how many more stars can i get in my star field how many more uh-huh. sprites can i get on the screen at once and so that was definitely what appealed to me uh-huh. um, did you read 2600 magazine as a kid i did not know that no that was are you familiar with it do you know what it is is this um, it's more of a hacking magazine yeah isn't it? yeah oh, yeah it, that's in all 2600 later on usernet yeah. which was you know 2600 hertz being the the frequency at which the uh, phone system used as its kind of like escape character. Yeah, yeah, wasn't it that? I feel like. Or is that? I feel like there was a tone where it was like for payphones, where when you like everything was in increments of nickels, and so when you dropped in a, I, I'm probably botching this. It was this is literally <laughs> like 30 years ago, but like you would drop in a quarter and it would you get five of these beeps, right? And so you could you could build something that just made that tone and play it into a telephone, and each beep was a nickel, right? So if you wanted to, make, and so you could get yeah. free phone calls, yeah, basically. Basically, yeah. And I I have this memory of that's where it came from, but I'm probably it could be I'm probably it could be that. I, I know sure there were I'm different other tones. There were the ones that I remember were the freaking tones, which were yeah. um, once you you could get like a switchboard to put the phone down, and the the line was still open, mm-hmm. and essentially it was dead, waiting for you to put the phone down. But as far as the exchange was concerned, like the telephone exchange mm-hmm. was concerned, um, it was an empty line. And then as long as you knew the magic code that the exchange used itself to like communicate lines, yeah. you could like dial out long distance, 
and say, and, and it was billed to either the person who just put the phone down or it was not billed at all. It got lost inside the cracks. And again, mm-hmm. I'm also probably butchering this, yeah, but like, yeah. these were simpler times when right. literally the frequency of a tone down a line was the only communication channel that was available to you. And then, you know, there's no yeah. cryptographic signature right. on that. Right, right. <laughs> so no, it's like there's anyone no private key involved here. There's nothing like that. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, what was it? Captain Crunch, the, uh-huh. the, the hacker, was so named because he found that the whistle yes. that you got out of a box yes. of Captain Crunch cereal happened to be that 2600 hertz. Yep. yep. And so that was it. You just got your Captain Crunch and then off you go, yeah. whatever you were doing with it. Yeah. But the reason I how bring do we get it, onto this? <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up is because you're talking about like the type in games and magazines and they had oh, similar things at 2600 yeah. they had type in it was it was the first memory that i have i have this memory this is the troll the stroll down memory lane for me this podcast tonight um i remember getting the magazine and i remember being super fascinated by everything that was going on and i remember seeing these programs in the back and i had used basic and i had used pascal at the time but i had never used c and i was like what is this language Right. Oh, and then a friend of mine started talking about he had gotten a license for the Borland Turbo C compiler, and I'm like, "Oh, is that the same language from the 2600?" And he's like, "Yeah. Why do you think I got it?" <laughs> and that was I have that memory of like that's that was when I first learned that C was a programming language, and I was probably oh I don't know, four I was probably around the age of my oldest child right now, right around the 13, 14. That's, or so. that's really quite something. And it also shows up how much older I am than you, <laughs> which is not much older, but or just more older. into no, C, that, right? <laughs> right. We're, we're, like when I was 14, I was programming ARM assembly yeah, because well, yeah. we couldn't afford the, the compilers. And, and you know, I don't know that I don't. I, my memory was just before going to, to university, so 17, 18. Um, I was becoming aware that there was C because the magazine again was publishing it. But from like looking through it, I had dismissed it as just a crappy macro assembler. <laughs> I mean, that's not actually the worst. Um, that's not the worst thing I could say about. You know, it's not the worst characterization yeah. of C. Yeah. Is that it's a macro assembly because that's actually its strength, right? You look back and you're like, yeah, because you can reason as you're writing down the C code. At least with the you know 30 year old now C, C programmers, so C compilers of the time, mm-hmm. you were writing out stuff that could pretty much map line by line to a set of instructions. There was nothing else more yeah, sophisticated yeah. going on, and the language didn't allow you to do many more sophisticated things, and that was absolutely fine. It was just a great way of getting almost portable assembly. Um, certainly, you know, that's what you're doing when you're manipulating strings and Unix calls and yeah, things like yeah. that for writing Unix. That makes, that makes sense, although I think we've discussed before, it's like the worst language to be doing any kind of string processing in. Yeah. But... Um, yeah. So the shop that you worked yeah, so, for was see. called Argonaut. Is that right? Oh, so when my first job was yeah. Argonaut Games. Yeah. Yes. Argonaut Games in North London. Um, so I started there in 1996 um, in between my final, my my, la- my penultimate, my final year of university. I, I did the interview and they said, yeah, come work for us now. And I'm like, uh, I haven't actually finished my degree. And they're like, do you have to? you could start now and i'm like uh i think my parents would kill me if i didn't finish my degree <laughs> although you know it has had literally no effect on my life so i don't regret it but it's it's yeah. i have not really used very much of my knowledge of quantum mechanics in my day job it turns out um nor can i remember most of it yeah right but yeah argonaut games um i've started out actually as a play tester mm-hmm. because they didn't know what to do with me right um, for um, the the PlayStation game Croc, so you know we talk about testing a lot, and I think I may have even mentioned this before on yeah. the podcast about you know the VHS recorder being yes. the most important yes. thing. 
you know, that was one of the things I was doing was just, you know, eight or nine hours a day playing very buggy PlayStation 1 croc um, and having it videoed. And if there was a problem, I could call over the... Mm-hmm. The, the people say, hey, this is what happened. They're like, no. And you're like, rewind the tape. And you go, look, see? See, I'm not making it up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, whoops. Yeah. And they go off and change something. Um, and then latterly, I worked on the, the, the PC port of Croc. And so I got to actually write. Uh, I think I, they let me write the front end to that, mm-hmm. which, was, mm-hmm. which was kind of them. And then I got a huge break, actually. I was, I was uh, big, bigging myself up enough that um, somebody took a punt on me writing the engine, like the 3D engine yeah. for a new game for a Dreamcast title. This is pre-Dreamcast being even announced, and before it was even called Dreamcast, it was just called Kamui back in the day. Oh, wow. But uh, um, uh, one of the producers at Argonaut was like, we need somebody to write a new engine, and it's going to be for a new console, so we can't use anything that's already there. We just need someone who who we, we reckon can do it. And I was like, hey, I'll do it. And they were like, you sure? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, got my fingers crossed behind my back. Right, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. this should be, I've dawdled, done this before. Um, that was, I, I look back and the, that producer, Nick Clark, taking a punt on a an unproven, uh-huh. pretty much unproven uh-huh. programmer was uh, was a, was pivotal, really. That was what got me really going in the, in the industry. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I think I've said before that the, the Dreamcast is my favorite console to have worked on. Mm-hmm. Just really nicely put together. Um, just the right lowish level, like access to the hardware. Um, we were, a, they called it a one and a half party. So normally you know, they're a first party title or a third party title, right? You know, like if you're oh, a first okay. party title, then you're actually just working as if you are Sega or Sony or whatever. And then you're a, you're a developer, but you're like, white label like i forget right. which color label it would be but like the label that says like no one will ever know yeah. that they contracted somebody to do this it's going to be a sony right. game or a, right. a sega yeah, game it's published by nintendo or sony exactly or and yeah, yeah maybe yeah. there's just a tiny credit somewhere and then a third party yeah. obviously is you know the you're a separate company altogether you're you know psychosis or well, actually were bought by sony yeah. so that's confusing so that's a terrible example um you know you're um rockstar <laughs> and you're like yep yeah, we just make yeah. the game and then we're going to make it for whichever platform and but in this instance, they wanted to be sort of somewhere in between. So we had really good access to the tech people at uh, at Sega. And mm-hmm. I'm still Facebook friends with a, a half dozen of them, which is great fun to sort of see what's happened to the, the sort of diaspora of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of Sega employees. But it meant that we had some great um, inroads into the, uh, the tech side of things. And that meant, you know, I could ask any question. A lot of it was still over in Japan and the, the European people didn't necessarily know as low level the stuff that was, was going on inside the system. But it was fairly straightforward. And um yeah, it's just it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I learned a whole ton of things and I'm so lucky that uh, I was somebody took that that gamble on me. So what games did you make after that? Gosh, now we're now I have to think uh, so after that, we we had this idea. There were a bunch of us so towards the end of um, Red Dog, which was the Dreamcast title, which was a, a sort of sh- sh- first, not first, but a third person tank shooting game. Mm-hmm. Are there we, YouTube you, videos of these games that I can there look are, at? Oh, there are. Okay, there are. That's an exercise for, for later. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. If you go look for uh, Red Dog Superior Firepower, was it was its terrible um, tagline. Mm-hmm. It's. It actually plays okay. We've got it on the Dreamcast. I'm, I'm you know, obviously our listener can't see this, but I'm gesturing behind me to mm-hmm. the the Dreamcast on the floor, and the kids have played it, and it's it it holds up okay. It's not 
earth shattering, but it was it was good at the time. And yeah. I despair of some of the things we took out, um, but nonetheless, I'm 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 really proud of it. And you know, the, the engine was mine. There was there were three of us doing the programming, so I wrote mm-hmm. the engine and I wrote all the 3D Studio plugins and all the map nonsense and then there was uh like the lead programmer who also did all like the ai and the strat programming language which was you know like a separate language that we could give snippets of to the designers and the level layout folks Mm -hmm. so that they could actually script what was going to go on without having to actually write c right and it was mostly c with a little bit of c plus plus um and some actually quite a reasonable amount of assembly for the triangle rasterizing type stuff for the triangle submitting stuff and then we had another person who did uh, the collision and the physics, you know, co- collision is actually really difficult, right? There's yeah. one thing, through, you know, you've yes. got hardware support for like drawing triangles. That's what the system's designed to do. But right. like, you know, does the sphere of this tire yeah. intersect with any of the thousands and thousands of, of, of triangles? That's a tough thing to do. Yeah. And so Sav, uh, Sav is, um, did a fantastic job with that. You know, nowadays that's outsourced. So both the engine gets outsourced usually yeah. in, in games. Like and Unity the, um, or... Uh you know, yeah, like that. Um, Unreal, that yeah. kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. but even towards the end of my time in the games industry, Havoc was mm-hmm. the name of the system, which was a physics and collision system. And there, you know, there, there's a lot of smarts. You know, you mentioned Wolfenstein. Part of the rendering system that made Wolfenstein super, super amazing could also be used for collision detection, which was clever. And the same was true of both Doom and Quake as mm-hmm. they went on mm-hmm. down that. You know, that was a big problem is like if you've got ais running around and you've got people shooting all the way you really want to have decent line of sight calculation that doesn't take forever that's accurate so that you can actually hide behind a barrel and Mm -hmm. then they can't see you that kind of stuff so it's a really important part of the game Uh, as well as the more obvious if i shoot and it hits a wall i can see where the the bullet hole is in the right place it's not like three inches up and to Uh the right which you know is obviously a problem um yeah so at, at the end of red dog we then um we decided um, there's a bunch of us who were a little bit disaffected with stuff, but we had our own game idea. And so we, we were a couple of like very subterfuge meetings around a friend's house where we kind of s- fleshed out an idea. And the idea was for a top-down, uh, well, sort of three-quarters-down view, kind of like, oh, gosh, what was the name of those, those strategy, turn-by-turn strategy games, like alien attack-type things on the PC around the oh, time. XCOM? Yes, thank you. Oh, I'm oh, yeah. so glad you could remember that. Yeah. So yeah, there was XCOM and a whole bunch of things. So sort oh, of like that, but imagine... XCOM. Yeah, no, but you, we were trying to make it so that it was sort of partly real-time and partly oh. turn-based. Oh, and so the idea yeah. was, you know, you were like some squad about to like bust into a building, and so you right. could sort of queue up the next few moves and then like pull the trigger and have your four or five teammates all jump in through the window at the same time and then they'll do some some level of autonomous attack as well as you being able to like do a more real-time like oh, strategy so a bit of a more like a command and conquery type real-time mm-hmm. aspect but with the other mm-hmm. um uh, feel right so right, that was the right. idea and we mocked out some some um some graphics using the red dog on engine on the dreamcast which was a lot of fun because once you take the game out and you've only just got the the rendering engine you can you've got a lot more time budget to to spend on really pretty things so i remember us having a very polished floor where we just literally inverted the geometry and drew it again underneath it with a transparent floor instead and it looked like it was this beautifully shiny reflecty thing which was which was very pleasant and uh, it ran at 60 frames a second instead of the terrible 30 frames a second the red dog ran at and it was great and um we basically got the go-ahead to start investigating that was going to be that game was going to be called cleaners with a with a k 
because uh-huh. you apparently like some contract killer cleaner, you know, like Leon yeah, right. thing was out around yes. about this time. Uh-huh. It was very yeah. much that thought. And to this day, um, the even the the sequel to the game that came out of Cleaners was still in a directory called Cleaners because it's hard to rename software. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I, I mean, yeah, it's possible that there's some amount of that source code still exists uh, somewhere that I have access to. So I, I speak from recent recollection. There's some wow. good there's some good gems in that code base. Um, yeah. The company folded. As far as I'm aware, um, nobody really owns that anymore. Um, obviously. I can't publish it, but it would be really interesting. So it's such a time capsule of all these things that yeah, happened back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, Had you seen a game like that before that mixed the sort of like tactical turn-based stuff and the live stuff? I don't, I don't remember that we had or did, and certainly nothing springs to mind now. Because yeah. there are games like that, like um, Divinity Original Sin has that mechanic in it. Um, oh, really? I think there's another one that I played that has that mechanic in it. And I wonder if the lineage of that, you know, you say, like, you ask the designers of that game, like, where'd you get the idea to do this? And they'd be like, oh, it was this game. And you ask those designers, where'd you get the idea to do this? I wonder if that goes all the way back. Right. I mean, it it didn't come back. So the game changed a lot for us. That was our Mm -hmm. idea. And like so many things, the tale grows in the telling. And in this instance, the telling was very different because uh, we did work on it for a while. And then... um, uh, oh, I can't remember who had the 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 the, the person who had the uh, IP of the SWAT games, the special mm-hmm. weapons and tactics. Yeah, uh, approached us and said, "Can you do us a SWAT game for Xbox?" Mm-hmm. And we're like, "Well, we have a Dreamcast engine running a sort of vaguely the same type of game, and they wanted it to be different anyway because of, because Xbox it would be their first console attempt at a SWAT uh, franchise game." Mm-hmm. And so somebody three or four rungs up in the in the company went oh yeah we can definitely do that with the cleaners engine and so you know very quickly cleaners got pushed to one side then it became swat yeah got it and it's it very quickly became a first person we kept the team mechanic and um obviously and it moved to xbox as well which is another great mm-hmm. console for what it's worth there's a lot of good things going on in, in particular the tooling was amazing microsoft did a great great job of um putting together a tool suite and really understanding that developers will developers are lazy and if you give them really good tools then they they do a lot of good things mm-hmm. with them yeah the the equivalent i mean eventually we had to port it to ps2 as well so i have a lot of experience of taking a very in my opinion obviously my very biased opinion a very capable high-tech xbox rendering engine which had dynamic lighting which had bump mapping which had uh depth of field which had like light blurring and so like you know you'd be blinded by flashbang grenades with blind mm-hmm. you couldn't see mm-hmm. we like actually resampled the screen and we used it as like an, a, a virtual iris so if you happen to look up at the sun which was actually brighter than the screen could go mm-hmm. we would we, we would notice that and start dialing back like the gamma correction on the tables yeah, until eventually the sun was like bright and then everything else was effectively looked black and then if you looked away from it everything was pitch black until it redid the other way so there's all these cool effects and like that yeah, and they said can yeah, you make this work yeah. on the ps2 we're like no no <laughs> ps2 is amazing what it has is fill rate in spades so it's uh, the ability to put pixels on the screen was unparalleled it could really write faster memory um i my understanding actually is that the some of the units that could do like the 
per pixel operations were in the RAM cells or very close to the RAM cells, which let them do these clever things like, mm. you know, fill the screen really fast and like blend with what was already there. But it meant that you were extremely limited in what you could do because it was like that was the functionality that the hardware mm. had and there was nothing mm. else. Whereas this, the Xbox, we had like eight instructions that could run per pixel and we could do a limited amount of maths in that and that's how we were able to do bump mapping and some of the other crazy effects that we had going and we also had vertex shaders which would allow us to do like a few hundred uh, assembly instructions worth of processing on each vertex mm, okay. and the playstation 2 has effectively an in, in a, a general purpose um cpu for that vertex processing but it was really awkward to use and you're forever like dealing with like why didn't this work oh the dma hadn't quite finished before the next thing needed to happen and so you've a lot mm. of embedded like plate passing of memory around and being very, very careful. Plus yeah. the fact that it was a different CPU from the main CPU, which meant that you were cross-compiling for it if you were going to try and write any kind of yeah. C code. But because it was so limited, you usually just ended up writing in assembly directly. Yeah. And if you were writing directly in assembly, it had no architectural hazards. So if you did add the equivalent of add register one to register two and saw the result in register three, and then you said, okay, now... At store register three somewhere else it would let you do that but the thing is the result for register three wasn't ready yet so you would just no. store whatever the previous result of register three yeah. was there was you know it's fully pipelined and had all these levels of pipeline so our primary ide for writing um uh, vu code as, as they were called was 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 excel <laughs> and we would write the instructions in excel and then oh we would God. use color coding to sort of show when register three would become ready and therefore you could use it. And of course, the real way of getting the speed out of it was to uh, abuse that and go, well, okay, I, I, I actually need the old version of the thing of register three. <laughs> and so if I do that, the cycle before it completes, I get the old version. And on the next cycle, it's pipelining and, you know, by hand, basically. By hand, yeah. Oh my God. Um, Sony eventually uh, developed a tool that, let, that allowed you to write normal code and it would do some of that stuff for you. But, you know, just those were the fun days. Anyway, so we were able to do uh, with some interesting trickery we were able to do most of what the swap xbox engine did not all of it we were never able to get the dynamic lighting going but we're mm -hmm. my my co-engine writer on that uh, nick hemmings who i later ran the c tools company with which i think we've talked a little bit about before uh he and i were able to work out most of the things and in particular our lighting system was very amenable to being ported to the ps2 so we were very very lucky mm -hmm. it was just a fluke one of those things like oh that's cool yeah, so anyway, SWAT was the next game I worked on. Hmm. And in fact, during that process, we, we made a general purpose game engine, which was used in a couple of other titles. Oh, cool. Um, so I've got a bunch of credits in games that I don't even remember them hmm. being around. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But as I say, it all came out of someone taking a punt on, on me. And so I'm, you know, forever thankful. And the the sad thing is, um, there were there are a number of reasons um, why. Um, so Nick, ended up leaving Argonaut under a bit of a cloud. I don't know that he was cut out for the job that he had. And mm -hmm. it just, it came up against him. And eventually I think he may have decided to go or whatever. And I've never been able to, you know, and it took me years afterwards to realize, you know, retrospectively how lucky I had been because he was like, yeah, sure. Go on, Matt, you give it a go. Right. And mm -hmm. it, there was, no, you know, it was, it was definitely one of those career t page turning moments where it could have gone either way. And, um, and so I'm very grateful to him, but he's vanished off the face of the earth. And then, you know, about every two or three years, I'll, you know, he's got a very generic name, unfortunately, and he yeah, seemed to have left yeah. the industry. So I couldn't, I've not been able to find him. So if by some miracle he's listening to this podcast, thank you, Nick, you, you really did <laughs> send me on the right path 
mm-hmm. in the in the games industry. And I think as a result of the confidence I picked up from that, it snowballed onto where I am now. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. So Xbox, uh, PS2, and then um, there were some other bits and pieces. And I'm forgetting a, a few things in between there. I I know, but uh, the, mo- the the last game I worked on was actually one I worked on. After I had left Argonaut, after Argonaut had folded and Nick and I had set up ProFactor, our, our C++ mm-hmm. consultancy and tooling company, right. we still loved games so much that we were still making them in our spare time. And we made right. a little um, Xbox Live um, community edition thing, uh, which meant we had to write the whole thing in C Sharp because we weren't able to get a, a, um, a dev kit from, oh, from Microsoft. wow. Okay. And they kind of released this, hey, you know, as an experiment, if you write it in C Sharp and you use these these... Uh, mm-hmm. facilities you can like upload it unsigned onto a con you know you put this you download this game that's not really a game it just interprets c-sharp right and it's it was it was a good thing but you know we tried to use it to get far enough down the line to actually get a publisher interested right. and um so i had to put my business hat on them which was really interesting <laughs> interacting with the publishers and mm-hmm. spending all the time on the telephone trying to tell sell things to People and then hearing what the rates were, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, we we're quite interested in your game. These are our just standard terms." And you look at them, you're like, "It's seventy five percent you, yes, twenty five percent us. You're going to give us an advance of like fifty grand, a hundred grand, you know that. Right. I forget, right? It's a long time, yeah, but give me yeah. that amount, and then effectively you recoup your costs first out yes. of the revenue of the game." And then after that, we get twenty five percent of the remaining yes, amount. Yes. This is this is the worst loan I have ever been offered. I, yes. I, why would I even need you? What are you doing for us? Oh, but you know we we advertise your game. We put we put it on the store for you. And like no no, you're doing nothing, right? This yes, is this is right. the beginning of the, the the sort of app store revolution. Yes yes, this is this is why these things were created. It's because of publishers doing that 100%. exactly. But now of course yeah. Apple and the like are in that position of like well we take this amount and you're yeah. like what do you do exactly you you host my file on your download server mm-hmm. and yeah, you at least sign it with your 75% key percent anymore though no that's true but it's still yeah. more than more than the, the very little it needs to be you know yeah i think true. probably the, the 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 exemplars of people who have worked out the exact right amount to take is this credit card companies who you know just about sit at the bottom end trying to scrape as much as they can out mm-hmm. of the stores? Admittedly, not not the not me. Right. And it's like you know bounces around what five percent ish. Yeah. And yeah. that's just low enough that people grumble about it, but it's not actually. Well, right. Maybe it would be a different world if it was zero. I don't know. Right. Anyway, right, that's right. not the question. They've, they've hit the efficient <laughs> frontier of how much you can take before someone really cares. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. All right. So I've talked a lot for the last twenty odd minutes, maybe more than that. Which you know, I know is kind of your mo. You poked me with a with a thing. And you said like, I, I can just wind Matt up. We, turn we the do key. that to each other all the time. That's but what I want to hear about your games. <laughs> I want to hear about your board game. Or do you want to do that another uh, another one? I can I can talk about it. I, you know, let's talk we, about it. I'd like to we, hear it. It's it's there's not a ton to tell, so I don't think this is going to take up too much too much time. But basically. Um, I love, first of all, I love, in addition to video games, I love board games. Um, I really like co-op board games. Um, that's sort of my favorite thing is, you know, like games where you can get together with a group of people and sort of share the same objective. And so, um, I don't know that I've ever played a cooperative board game. Oh, really? I mean, we, uh, there was that game, The Grizzled. Because that was sort of like on brand for the last couple of years. Yeah, no, no, not that. No, yeah. I know you brought one in once, and I, I think I hovered around the edge of it uh, uh, while well, like a drinks yeah. evening. Um, 
where you explained it but I don't think I've sat down to do it and it sounds like a great family thing because you know there's oh, yeah. the one child that you have that wants to win and then gets very disappointed mm-hmm. when they don't <laughs> mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the other child doesn't care at all and, and it would be nice to say well how if we all care about it together maybe we'll get somewhere but so yeah you like cooperative games yeah 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 and it, I mean great for for friends and you know beer and pretzels too like if there there's lots of um ways in which those games can be super fun but I I love uh, uh strategy games I love cooperative games and so I made a uh, a game called Earth is Dead. Uh, oh. And the premise of this game was that uh, Earth had been destroyed by a giant meteor. And in the years leading up to it, humanity had sort of rallied to build some, you know, sort of colony ships to send off to another world. And the had, A-Arc, the B-Arc, yes, and the C-Arc. Exactly. <laughs> Except and, for and, real. Yep, uh, and had um, developed this faster-than-light jump drive to propel them to this new world. Uh, but the problem was is that in humanity's haste, the jump drive didn't actually work. Right. And it, and it basically took you to a random location in space. And so the way this game worked is you each of the players would play a captain of one of these ships, and your goal was to basically jump around to various random parts of the universe and collect enough data to where you could fix the navigation system and the jump drive and go to where you're actually trying to go where so you could set up your colony right oh interesting and it was a it was sort of like a dice pool mechanic game so you would you would have officers on your ships um that when you jump to a new location you're like okay where are we you draw a card it would give you some location and the cool thing is is that uh, these were real locations in space. Like all the stuff is like, you know, um, I want to say open source, but various name stars and things, you know, Alpha Centauri or. Yeah, but it's like there's all this material uh, and like pictures and other th- public domain. I'm sorry. Oh, I see <laughs> that all, kind of. Right. Yeah, these are all public domain pictures, you know, that, that have been created by NASA or other other things. And so, you know, I, I took the. I took the art from from that, and I took the actual places from that, and then you know, there's some crazy things in the universe. It's like here's a planet that's entirely made of molten lead, and it rains lead on this planet, right? And like you know, that sort of crazy stuff, right? Uh, a magnetar that's like the magnetic fields are so strong that if you got within a thousand kilometers of it, the atoms in your body would literally be ripped apart, right? Like that kind of stuff. Um, so you know, it made for sort of interesting things, and so the 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 basic turn in this game would be you would jump to a new location everybody on the ships would uh kind of scramble to figure out what the heck was going on they would make various skill checks you'd try to collect some data maybe you succeeded maybe you didn't and then you jumped again right and when you collected enough you could finally jump to the the final location and, and win the game um and designing this game i read this book i read this really great book by this guy that designed like rides at Disneyland and he talked about sort of like the emotional experiences that you go through when you're playing a game and you it's sort of it's a little bit like that you get with like a story like a like a narrative wow but um like the arc of the the, the hero right, and right, the, the, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah 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 um but he talked he talked a lot about like you know how you have to like a little bit sort of like that sort of, you know, that hero's journey where you like, you need to give people abilities and you let them use those abilities and have successes. Um, but then increase the challenges so that the old abilities don't work anymore and they need to adapt. And then you sort of, 
you know, build it up to this 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 climax. And the, and you know, there's lots of details in this book that I'm I'm not doing it justice by describing it right now. But but one of the one of the like th- this guy that, that wrote this book, um, his views. And Sid Meier's views on games is kind of mm-hmm. what entirely shaped my view of games and game design, where Sid Meier, um, uh, obviously prolific, uh, just ama- amazing game designer, um, you know, uh, and, and, and him had very different views on it. But I, I really liked his take on it, where, where he said that, like, the purpose of a game is to elicit an emotional response. Right, like you're trying to make mm-hmm. people feel scared or happy or sad, just like a movie, just like a book. And so, when you're designing the game, you can never lose sight of that. And I, and I, and I, and as I worked on this game, that was always my struggle. Is I would get enamored with the statistics. I would like be figuring out like the dice right. rolls and trying to figure out like the how do I how do I balance like the programmer this out? and you so, couldn't yes, help exactly. like coming out and the mathematician exactly. and like you know what the hell is this going to help? Exactly. Gonna be like I was like, how do I balance this game and make sure that it all works? And then Every once in a while, you have to stop and be like, is this fun? Is this actually fun? Or am I just creating a math problem for someone to solve? And I'd be like, no, this Which, is... Which you and I know people for whom that would be the perfect game. <laughs> well, it's so, true. you know, we should probably talk about it. It's true. But, but yeah, if you're trying to, 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 to apply mm-hmm. what you've learned from this book, then yeah, you're trying to, to elicit a, uh, an emotional response. You're mm-hmm. trying to say, this is where you despair. You're like, well, surely we're going to die now because yes. X has just yes. happened. You're like, ah, but if you... And you want, you want people to go on that right. that journey, right. that roller coaster ride. Exactly, exactly. And and the cool that thing about tough. co-op games is that if you do it right, everyone's feeling that together, right? So you have a group of people that are simultaneously like, oh, man, we're screwed. <laughs> this is, this is going to be right, bad, yeah. right? This uh, is, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, they overcome it, and then it's, oh, my God, we made it, right? So it's all that all that kind of thing. But that was always that was always my my struggle with this. And, and from that experience, and I think you and I have kind of talked about this, but if I was ever going to go back into game design, I think the way that I would do it, even if I was going to uh, do board games, which I, I love board games and, and would definitely do that, but the way that I would do it is that I would build a, let's just call it digital version of the game first. It might be like just mm-hmm. a straight up video game version of it, maybe for like a you know mobile device. It might also just be like a very bare bones sort of just simulation of the game that you could click around with, but the getting the the mechanics and the playtesting right um, in that would be so much easier than having to like print out cards, which is what I did. Like I, I had see, like yeah. you know Google Docs with like all the card layouts in one page, and I would print them all out. And, and at a, on a color printer and then I would cut them all up and slide them into sleeves and then I had like a deck of fake cards that I would use and I would gather whatever remaining friends could tolerate this process and say oh, hey guys you want to play another round of uh, Earth is Dead and they'd be like alright fine I imagine that's a real problem yeah yeah, yeah is that that's like it's only... fun the first yeah. five times maybe and then it's like okay day 27 yes. play testing <laughs> play testing yes especially because the early versions aren't that good so you're just you're really you're really punishing them by doing this um and so like having that feedback cycle where you can play test and like are am i creating these emotional situations am i creating this sort of like this sense of of dread am i creating this this like sense of victory it's a really hard thing to 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 get right and to sort of measure and so you only have so many cracks at this and so what i would do if i were to do this over again is i would separate those two processes entirely i would have a simulation of the game, some sort of digital version, where I work out all the mechanics, I make sure everything's balanced, 
and then I go and I play test it and I see if it's fun. And if it's not, then I can go back and tweak the rules only in the dimension of funness and have the system <laughs> there to tell me hmm, whether or the not phonometer the phonometer suggests that right, we need to that we tweak need the to, fun up a little. We need to increase the the happy quotient here. This is this is not good. Um, <laughs> but that sounds like you know yeah, developing it entirely in like a mock form yes. in a you know web browser or right, whatever, so right. that you can play it with your pals and not even have necessarily have to be in the same room right, kind of thing. But right. did, did, surely these kind of kits exist, right? There must be like generic rule engine based stuff where you can prototype. Yeah, yeah. There, there are, and, and and I think you can actually borrow a lot. There are a lot of generic tabletop systems that you can get. Um, and if I were to design a game today, I would look really hard at one of those to be like, I'm just going to take this basically rules engine for for this tabletop game and I'm going to adapt it to whatever my game is to make sure that I have like game mechanics that like kind of make sense and are coherent with each other um but but uh a, fr a, fr a mutual friend of ours Lyle has a great description of sort of some of these aspects and how they come together right you have the the rules of the game and then you have the sort of style of the game and the way that Lyle describes this to me and I'm sure he got this from someone else I don't know who is it's the the crunch and the fluff. So like a game like chess is all mm -hmm. crunch. There's no fluff. It's just mechanics, rules. You follow the rules of the game. You play the game, right? There are mm -hmm. other games. Like, have you ever played the game Exploding Kittens? I have, yes. yes. Yeah. So it's almost all fluff. Exploding is that, Kittens is, what is a say game Because it's all about the stupid cards. Almost all fluff. The art is cool and the ideas are cool. But like the actual the, mechanics The giggling of children the game. have just discovered that we forgot the NSFW pack right. out by accident. Yes. You know, that's all what the game's about yes. for them. Yes, yes. Which which you can have games that, that are all one or the other, right? Like chess is all crunch and, you know, uh, Exploding Kittens is 90% fluff. But really great games find ways to combine these th things symbiotically. And one of my litmus tests for this is if you mm. look at the, the, the art of a game or the style of a board or the design of a character, and you can intuit just from looking at it what the rules probably are, mm. that's when you've really meshed the synergy between those two things because now they're like informing each other. Um, Got it. When the when yeah. the when the flunch, uh, the crunch and the fluff sort of like balance out, and you're like, I bet that ranger can shoot an arrow. What do I need to do? It's like, oh yes, on page three yeah. it says that the ranger can shoot an arrow. Who would you like to yeah, shoot it at? No, right, cool. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was sort of my experience with that. And and and. And is that the only game that you you've made, or have you done more than that? So I made some calculator games in school uh, on my TI eighty five. Uh, I made. Um, I made a bunch of demos in college when I was applying uh, oh, to companies. For, yeah, to companies. You're like, hey, here's my, you know, like my, my um, demo and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I made those kinds of things. But I don't know that I've ever really made any sort of like video games that are worth. But uh, is your is your board game still in print? It is. What's the right? Well, oh, it is. So it's it's. I I published it. Talking. Speaking of publishers. Yeah, how does that even work? Yeah, so I mean, how do you go from like I have an idea and some a Google Docs with pictures to yeah. here is my laminated joyous thing without right, you know, right, right. printing it out yourself and uh, so if you go to earthisdead.com you can you can buy it. The way it works is it's um it's a it's a publisher called the Game Crafter that does single print games. So when you buy a game, they will print it up and they will mail it out. That means it is... What, like on-demand on demand. printing? That oh. means it is much more expensive than a traditional wow. board game would be. So my game is, is, 
it's not that complicated. There's there's a couple of decks of cards. There's I don't know maybe twenty four very dear small listener, dice. Ben is gesturing uh, like a, a sort of like yes. a six inch by right. four inch cubeish. Yeah, cube yeah. yeah. It's like it's like maybe yeah. it's like maybe six inches by eight inches by two inch box, right? And Got so it. if you were to buy a game like that in a typical uh, game store, you might expect to pay like twenty bucks, right? Yeah. If you if you buy Earth is Dead, I think it's like thirty five. Right, I and, see, and that's mostly because of the on-demand yes, cost of exactly. quite reasonably, right. whatever. I, I only can only guess at how they magically print something like that I on know. demand, which seems very bespoke, it, right? Yep. Very, very bespoke. I mean, I'm amazed enough when I order some of the more obscure books that I order, and they are on-demand printed, and it's you know, look in the back cover, it's like printed three days ago, and you're like, what? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. they made this whole book for me yep. just then. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. And you can do that with a board game. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Did you have to conform to particular sizes? Did you have to compromise your design for that? Or did, did they, they adapt to you? Oh, no. You absolutely, you have to conform. And not only do you have to conform, but there are many, many, many different choices. And they all have different price points. And that greatly informed the design of the game. Where you're just like, In, oh, if okay. I have this rule mechanic, then I'm going to need these pieces. And those pieces cost 78 cents each. And I would need 12 of them. And that would increase the cost of the game by this. So... Maybe I can do this mechanic, and that that whole permutation of like the rules and the parts and the infinite array of parts that the game crafter would wow. offer you, and how much they cost, and and all of that was all part of the calculus of figuring out the design of the game. That's how interesting that that's so similar to like your day job, <laughs> where you're saying this trade off it'd be really great if we had this, and you're like, yeah, but it's like a six week build. Yep, yep. How much do I really need that right. thing? Well, we'll just maybe we'll limp on a bit longer yep. with just cat and r sync rather than building our own like <laughs> process or whatever. I mean, it does seem that way. Yeah. No, um, it's absolutely that. It's absolutely that. Yeah. That's so cool though. I I I don't think I realized quite how smart these these uh these on-demand things could be oh, man. you could actually make an on-demand yes. uh, board and game. this was like four or five years ago when i did this so it's probably even cooler these days right if you were to go back to it now yeah. could you put you know maybe even savings and changes yeah. and whatever that sounds really cool but did you find any bugs how did you test this you know obviously you did play testing which yeah. is more like acceptance testing right but did you actually have like Test. I mean, what 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 could you? So test? one of the things that I did very intentionally is make sure that you could play it with one player, because then I could play test it for myself, and I didn't have to inflict it on all my friends all the time. That made it all the time. Big you difference. could wait till it was like, yeah, and it got like a good seventy percent of the way there before. Right. So that was kind of your unit test, right? Exactly. Was the unit to run test before was... you ran the more expensive test that that would actually be more. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> we can make any episode about <laughs> testing, Ben. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah yeah so i would i would you know change change the spreadsheets that updated all of the cards automatically in google docs and i would print it well, all of out of course they did yeah and then i would <laughs> and then i would go and i would print out the cards and i would you know i would sit down and i would play three or four games by myself to just make sure that the mechanic that i thought was good was good and i would i would arrange different scenarios and be like well, what if this player had this card and this and this how would that all work and then once mm-hmm. i was pretty um, happy with the result, I would usually I would bring it to work and I would be like, hey, who wants to play with his dead over lunch? And I would get a few people that would be like, yeah, you know, Ben, that's begrudgingly, cool. yeah, all right, you know, it's better than my real job. Yes, that's when you find out who your <laughs> real friends are and when they're playing the <laughs> right. like half finished when... game that, you know, isn't quite all that fun yet. And they're just like, yeah, that's cool, we'll play. Dodgily printed out. Dodgily printed out. Into, uh-huh. into like, uh, <laughs> yeah, plastic 
laminated card type things. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. It, now, the more that we think about this, and this is the worst thing to be doing live in commas on a podcast, is to be solutioning all these kinds of things. But I am now interested in how a rule engine based system could work for like developing board games mm-hmm. where you could set up scenarios, save them, and just keep restoring the state of the game to like, hey, let's go back to when. Yes. You know, like, checkpoint here, and then we're going to play it through as if this happened, and then we're going to come back and see how it would have worked, panned out if we'd have gone another way. Yep. And then writing tests and say, can you exhaustively try all things and make sure this doesn't happen? Yep. yep. Even to the point where, you know, if if it, if it the, like, options are relatively limited and there's not, like, a lot of interperson banter, you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, Monopoly's the classic example where, you know, like, the rules are one thing, but nobody plays by the rules, because mm-hmm. everyone's like, no, 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 wait a second, what if I, can you, you buy, sell me that for this, Yeah, yeah. you know, all the horse training right. that goes on the side, that's difficult to do, but if it's a rule system, you could say, point, like, the AlphaGo kind of, like, mm-hmm. AI system, mm-hmm. and say, play it until you're really good at it, and then you can say, okay, and now I'm going to play it, it's like, oh my god, all it ever does is play this card over and over and over and over again, because it's discovered that that is the way you solve the game. Right, this must be, I have to fix the game yep. now, because the AI just does it this. Just, you- it just broke it. And yeah, and bringing this full circle, like, this is sort of my, my, my dream of, like, maybe one day when I ride off into the sunset and I get to, you know, make board games <laughs> when, in retirement. When your uh, cryptocurrency goes high enough, <laughs> yeah, that's we, right, cryptocurrency right. risk, we talked about the other week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> then I can finally, you know, achieve my dream of going into game design or going into games and doing AI. It'll just be for writing the AIs that play the board games that I designed to try to figure out if there are broken optimal strategies and how to simulate various scenarios so that I don't have to inflict that pain on my friends when I'm still designing the game. <laughs> <laughs> so you can still go to the pub with your friends <laughs> right. and still be a game designer. Yes. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that sounds brilliant. Where do I sign up for your your uh, AI company? <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. <laughs> cool. Still well, that on. seems like a good place to uh, to finish up. This has been super fun. Yeah. Um, I had no idea about the the depths of uh, the things that you could do in in board game design. Oh and, my goodness. Oh my goodness. And I, I like nothing more than pontificating about uh, the, the good old days of of game my game development career. So this has been beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful times, my friend. Okay. Well, until next time. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbolt. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Space inversephase.com. <laughs> <laughs>